We rejoiced yesterday. Some of you there were there with us in a further uh, growth of partnership between this church and mine when Marshall, your staff member, married the oldest daughter of my boss, of our senior pastor there at High Point. So the partnership gets closer and we, we look forward to serving one another in whatever way we can in years to come. But let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just to let you know why we landed here in 2 Corinthians 4. Several months ago, um, I preached here before. The last time I preached, I was actually in 1 Corinthians 5. But before that, I preached from the whole chapter of 2 Corinthians 3. I'll allude back to that just a little bit this morning. We won't go back and, re- and review the entire chapter by any, by any means. But um, that's why we're here in 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6. I want to remind you of those deep, encouraging gospel truths that that we heard from a while back from 2 Corinthians 3 and then take it a step further into the first six chapter or first six verses of chapter 4 which we'll read in just a few moments but for right now I want to ask you all a question okay maybe maybe I've done this before I want to ask you to reflect on something in your own heart in your own mind how you view the world so here's the question for you to think about for a moment do you tend to be a pessimist or an optimist? Okay, are you more inclined to think things are getting better? Or do you tend to assume that things are getting worse? Maybe you have evidence to back that up. What do you think? What would you say about yourself in a private conversation with someone who's, say, going to walk out the door and you won't see him next Sunday? What would you say if you're honest with yourself? And maybe the better question is, Should a Christian be an optimist or a pessimist? Does the fact that we are believers, that we profess faith in the name of Jesus Christ, should that change our answer from one to the other? And maybe some of you are thinking, well, well, Ben, it, it depends what sort of things you're talking about. It depends what you mean when you say, do I see the world as getting better or getting worse? And, and I'd have to agree with you. You're exactly right. And and this morning, we look into a passage that will explain how we can and probably should be both optimists and pessimists. That's what we'll see here in 2 Corinthians 4. And while it's true, while it's true that we have both things to be optimistic and pessimistic about, in this passage, this particular passage, as God speaks through, through Paul, Paul is explaining to God's people in the church in Corinth why they really should be encouraged. Why they should not be discouraged at perhaps bad things that were happening in the city and the world around them, but why they should, in the midst of that, be encouraged. So I stand before you, brothers and sisters, today in order, hopefully, to remind you of some Bible reasons, some God-inspired reasons why you, Park Hills Baptist Church, should be encouraged at what God has done through you, what He is doing, and what He will do through you. Now, just to back up a little bit, as you think about society, our American culture, do you ever feel pessimistic? Are you ever tempted to feel pessimistic? So, do you ever feel like like our mission as believers, like your mission as a church is, is hopeless? Do you ever feel like giving up? I mean, just just look. You've seen it in recent months. Look at how quickly around us the culture is changing. I mean, who would ever want to be associated with us? Who would ever naturally be inclined to believe our message? A bunch of increasingly viewed by the world as intolerant, narrow-minded, perhaps even bigoted people. 
Do you feel some sense of responsibility to be spearheading getting the gospel to your part of town? Because of your position here in, in, in this part of Austin, near Rolling Wood, and, and, or, or whatever exactly you would call this particular neighborhood, I'm not exactly sure. Do you feel some responsibility to, to take the gospel to this community? And do you ever wonder, why would the people in this community ever hear our message and be inclined to believe it? And so in a, in a city that prides itself on being weird, this whole city looks at, at Bible-believing Christians who think that God created the earth and think that the, that the Son of God died for people's sins and rose from the dead. This city of, uh, of weird looks at us and thinks that we're the really weird ones, doesn't it? So am I, am I, am I discouraging you at all? Because I, I kind of mean to set this up to be just a little bit discouraging because if we think for a moment that the success of, of this church if we think that the fruit of our evangelism depends on our skill and our persuasiveness, then we will look at the world and we will feel utterly defeated. We will rightfully feel hopeless if we're depending upon our skill and our persuasiveness to make change happen. But the good news of this passage is that we find God's reasons for hope. We find, we find good news that offers us supreme, unstoppable confidence. And what is the foundation? What's the root? What, is the, what are the grounds of that confidence? Well, this is where I want to I ask you to think back with me a few weeks ago to when we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The central message of that chapter, take some time and, and, and read it back over when you have a chance. Central message of that chapter is that God's Spirit is now doing what God's laws could never do on their own. Look especially at verse 18. We all, with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now today in chapter 4, this is the main idea of this part of chapter 4. Here today we'll see that God's Spirit is now doing in people's hearts what the strategies that we make up could never accomplish. God's Spirit is doing in people's hearts what our strategies could never accomplish. So, we don't lose heart. So we must not. We have no reason to give up. And what should we do? What should we do instead of giving up? Okay, we know we're not supposed to give up. So what should we do? Well, I think this passage will, will unfold three vital pieces of truth. Three key pieces of truth that will keep us from giving up. Let's look into, into 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And into the text, we'll read the text, and then we'll begin to take a look at these three reasons that I find here. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1-6. through 6. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God 
who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Father, open our eyes to these truths in your word. Give us confidence that you will likewise open the eyes of unbelievers to overcome the work of darkness and to cause light to shine. And may we be encouraged as we are reminded of these truths from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name that he might be exalted. Amen. So in this, in this passage, we will see three vital pieces of truth that give us reason to be encouraged. And the first vital piece of truth we see in verse 1. We remember that we have this ministry, this work, we have it by mercy. It is through mercy that it has come to us. So as, as we have this ministry of declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that the power of the Spirit will change people's hearts in a way that human per- persuasion could never do. As we remind ourselves of those things, we remember that we have this ministry through mercy. Now, what does it mean that, what does it mean that we have this ministry by, by mercy? Well, Paul means to say, he, he, he means to remind us of two things. First of all, where did this ministry come from? Well, Paul, that Paul is implying that, that this ministry did not start in us. God gave it to us. Okay, none of us have this mercy as some, or this ministry of the gospel as something that we have possessed, something that has originated in us. It's something that's come from outside us, something that God has given to us. And second, who's, we could ask, whose ministry is it? Well, the, the ministry doesn't actually belong to us. It has been given to us by God in His mercy. So we have it because God gave it to us, and we have it, though it has been entrusted to us, God owns it. These two principles are important. It's important that this ministry belongs to God because we need to remember that that He is still in charge of this ministry. In giving it to us, in still possessing it, in in entrusting it to us, we don't have any right to do it our own way. We do this ministry in His way. We don't have to improve on God's ideas. We don't have to change those ideas or dress them up to make them more palatable to people when we share the Gospel. No, we simply do what He has asked us to do, trusting that if it is His ministry, if it belongs to Him, that He'll make sure that it does the work He sent it to do. And it's also important that God gave this ministry to us because, well, how can I say this nicely? Let me just include myself in it in saying that sometimes we're arrogant and stupid. Okay, We are. We start to think that, that because we've believed the truth, we've come to to hear the preaching of the Word, read the Bible, and we've believed it. Sometimes we tend to think that we've come to believe it because we're better and smarter than the people who have not believed it. That is false. That is a really bad idea if we start to think that we're better and smarter than the people who have not believed the Gospel. If we think that about ourselves, we're denying that this passage is true. Because this passage has told us that we have this ministry by mercy. It is through the mercy of God. So friend, if you are here this morning and you are wary of Christianity, you've been turned off to Christianity because you met an arrogant Christian who acted like he was superior to you, well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure you met, you actually met a genuine Christian. You may have met an arrogant religious person. So if you are here this morning and you've decided to abandon or reject the truth of the gospel because of an arrogant Christian who thought he was better than you, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. I would love to explain to you how what you learned from that person and whatever interaction you had with them, 
I'd love to explain how that is antithetical to Christianity. Christians ought to be the most humble of people because we recognize that the gospel took root in our hearts not because of our superiority, but because of the mercy of God. And so we have this ministry by mercy. God gave it to us. God is in charge of it. And since He is in charge of it, there is a second vital reason that we have no need to lose heart. Okay, the first is that we have this ministry by mercy. The second vital reason is that we need to remember all we have to do to accomplish this ministry is to tell the truth. We remember that we only have to tell the truth. Now, Paul tells us what to do in verses 2 to 4. He first tells us what not to do. So if you look back with me at verse four, or verse 2, Paul says, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the Word of God. Now, what, what are these secret and shameful ways? Or how might we be tempted to use deception or to distort God's Word? Well, I think Paul's talking here about people who, who have good intentions. They want people to hear the gospel message. They want people to believe it, to respond it, to respond to it. Paul wants, as he'll talk about in chapter 5, Paul wants people to be reconciled to God. Paul knows that people are, are, are God's enemies. There's hostility between people and God naturally. And Paul knows that some people will be tempted to change the message of the gospel in order to make it more acceptable. So Paul is concerned here with people who how crazy is this? He's concerned about people who've decided that they need to give the Holy Spirit a little help. The Holy Spirit's power is not quite sufficient, or maybe God's not wise enough. God didn't know 21st century Austinites. We know 21st century Austinites. So we can figure out better ways to reach them than God did. We can give them a better message than what is here in the Bible. And that's, that's the that's the temptation that many in our Christian culture today will face. And, and I put it out there to you in a way that it's obviously ridiculous, but sometimes it's more subtle. Let me throw a few of these ways that believers may try to improve on the gospel. Let me throw a few of them out, out here at you. One is that Christians oftentimes, in, with good intentions, trying to get people to respond, we make false promises. Okay, we may, maybe perhaps across the globe we see this most prominently in the health and wealth gospel. Maybe also in TV preachers. Somebody told me this morning about how the health and wealth gospel is prevalent. It's on TV in, in, in Southeast Asia. South Asia, in another part of the globe. It's everywhere, and it's coming from America. Because we want people to believe. And so we try to tell people that, hey, if you believe Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you'll have a happy life. You'll be rich. You'll be prosperous. Your, your sicknesses will be taken away. And we are feeding people, if we tell them that, in order to make the gospel palatable. We're feeding them a lie. We are cutting out pages of Scripture. Read 1 Peter and see how that reminds God's people to expect that we will experience suffering just as Jesus suffered. We should expect to be treated as He was treated. So we may make false promises. We may also dilute the message. We may dilute the message. So think with me for just a minute. Can you think of any, any of these ways that I'm about to say that you might be tempted? So, so imagine that you're having a conversation with somebody in your neighborhood or at work or whatever, wherever you may come in contact with a person who isn't inclined to believe what you believe. And the person says, in reply to your sharing the gospel, imagine that they say, so, so, so you're telling me that because I'm Jewish or because I'm Muslim and, and I don't think that Jesus 
was God, the Messiah, that because I don't believe that, you're telling me that I'm going to burn in hell forever? Or because, because I think that God will accept me on the basis of my good works, and you're telling me that's not true, you think because I believe that, I am going to be, be under God's wrath forever in hell? If somebody pushed back at you saying that, would you be tempted to dilute the message? Or what if someone said, so, so you're telling me that God sent His own Son to earth and then God caused His Son to die at the hands of men? And God did that to pay for people's sins? Why would God cause that to happen to His Son for us? Or So you're saying that God knows, God knows bad things are going to happen and He's powerful enough to stop them, but He doesn't? And you want me to worship a God like that? Now imagine that you're having a conversation with somebody and they push back at you with those statements. Are we going to be tempted to dilute the message and say, no, no, God's, God's not really like that. You misunderstood. Or will, be, will we be willing to boldly speak truth as God has revealed it in His Word and trust that that truth will take root, that God's Spirit will cause people to believe, give them the ability to believe through the power of the Holy Spirit? Third, we might motivate by manipulation. We might encourage people to do the right things for the wrong reasons. This may, this may be an absurd example, but I remember back when I was a kid, I, would be in, I, I went to a, a, a Christian school, and the, I would, but I didn't go to the church that sponsored the school. And I remember the church that sponsored the school, every fall they would have a, a big series of meetings, revival meetings or, or prophecy preaching kinds of meetings and that sort of thing. And they would have contests where they would say to everybody in the church, Hey, bring as many people as you can, and whoever brings the most visitors will win a prize at the end. Might have been a Bible, or a really big Bible, or some other kind of prize. I don't remember at this point. And I remember, you know, you'd all stand up with your visitors on that Thursday night, and somebody would walk up to the front, then by Friday night, and, and receive a prize. Okay? And I just remember thinking, as a young person, not part of that church, I remember thinking at that point, you know, I wonder how, I'm coming, I'm a professing Christian, I wonder how, if someone were here and they were not a Christian, how would they feel that people are being motivated to bring me to hear the Gospel, but not at the hope so much of me becoming a Christian, but at the, at the thought of what prize they might win. And I wonder if there are any ways. I don't know how your church does things. I don't know how the churches you grew up in do things. I don't know how you motivate your children or other people who are under your care. Is it possible that we motivate people, motivate Christians, by the thought of some sort of material gain. We motivate them to do the right thing for some kind of gain rather than to see the name of Jesus exalted. We could go further there. I'll move on. Fourth, we may design our services or set up our, our ministries to cater to people who don't really want to worship Jesus. So, if you're here and you're, you're a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or an atheist or something else, you... You're always welcome to gather here on Sunday. You will always be welcome in this church. But we're not, you might have noticed already, we're, this church has not oriented everything that they do in their services to cater to someone who's visiting, who, who's not a Christian. And so Park Hills members, I, I, I know, I, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to, to bring your non-Christian friends to, the, to these services, but please, please don't think that you have done your Christian evangelistic duty by bringing someone into these doors. They will surely hear the gospel preached within this building, but 
But Sunday services are not primarily about appealing to people outside. We do things a lot differently. You, we. You would do things a lot differently here if you were trying to appeal to the average person walking down the street of South Congress, wouldn't you? But that's not how you've chosen to do things because this, now this is a time for you, for you, the, the members of this church, to be trained, to be built up, to be edified, encouraged, and then sent out on a mission to proclaim Jesus. So we gather to worship and be built up, but then we scatter to go on mission as ambassadors. In chapter 5 of this book, Paul's going to talk about how we are ambassadors. We're taking a, a, a message to a foreign country. And that's what you will do when you walk out these doors. Here you are in a, a little foretaste of the home country. Sunday morning gatherings are a little, a little tiny hint of heaven because you gather together with all God's people to sing praises before the throne of God and to worship God together. But then you scatter into this world, into this age, as people on a mission, as ambassadors, emissaries of the king, to take his message to the society. So, if we try to improve on the gospel, if we try to improve on the gospel, if we try to help the Holy Spirit, what are we really trusting? Maybe I should say, who are we really trusting? I think the answer is us. So Paul's told us what not to do. Don't try to improve the message. Well, then, what are we supposed to do? This is where I want you to look at the end of verse 2. Okay, so on the contrary, Paul writes, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So, we make an open statement of the truth, we state it plainly, and we expect that the Spirit will do what only He can do. Jesus tells the story of a person who sowed seed. This is in Mark chapter 4. I won't ask you to turn there. But about a, about a man who sowed slee, seed, and then what's he do? He goes to sleep. And as he sleeps, the seed that he sowed sprouts, grows up, and begins to bring fruit. This is a picture of how we are to be these ministers. Through the mercy that we have, we minister the gospel. We sow the seed, and we sleep. Not lazily, but it's a picture of rest. Confident rest that God will do, that God will, will do what He said He will do, that His mission cannot be thwarted. Verses 3 and 4 are simply saying that we have no control over, that, over how that truth is, is received. So we read, even if our gospel is veiled so that it, it is not received, that it, so that it cannot be seen, if it's veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, this, I understand this to be a reference to Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So these verses are telling us that we, that we cannot make people, we cannot persuade people to accept it in our own strength any more than we can make a blind person see light simply by telling him what light is like. That's what we're doing when we proclaim the message of the Gospel. Is we are telling people what Jesus is like, what God is like, what we are like, and what God has done to reconcile us to Him. And there needs to be a change in people's hearts that's far more, far more extensive than what we can do. We cannot expect that simply the telling of it will accomplish anything. The Spirit of God must do His work. Just like me telling a blind person what light is like will not cause him to see 
he needs some sort of medical intervention. Have you, ever, have you ever shared the Gospel plainly with someone? Maybe even walked them through a few passages of Scripture that are just crystal clear on what the Gospel is. That, that salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. It is, it is a work of God's grace that, that, not, that is not accomplished by any good works we could do. Have you ever walked anybody through that simple message of the Gospel that there is hope for us if we will trust in what Jesus has done and stop trusting in our own? And so you've walked through this conversation and got to the end of the conversation and said to the person, so what are you trusting in to get you to heaven? And they say, well, I think I've been a pretty good person. I think I've done a lot of good works in my life, and, and I, I think the Bible teaches that those good works that I've done, that God will see them and He'll accept me one day. And you've been so crystal clear in your presentation, and there's just no understanding there when you ask that person to come to the point of, of understanding. This is... This has happened to me, and I, and I wanted to tear my hair out because no matter what I said, I could not cut through the spiritual blindness. My persuasiveness was not sufficient. I, I just could not find the words that would penetrate their minds. What has to happen to that person? What has to happen, what had to happen to you and me is that, is that Jesus' power would overcome the blindness that Satan propagates. It's just like when Jesus, you read in the Gospels, Jesus cast out demons. So in the minds, in the blinded minds of people in our society, in our culture, Jesus has to overcome the power of Satan, the little g God of this age. So do you ever wish, do you ever wish that you would see more people converted through, through your congregation? Through, through your personal witness? I want to ask you a question. Are you not seeing more people converted through this congregation, through your personal witness? Because of one of two things. Are you not seeing more people converted because God is not doing His work? Because He is failing to employ the power of His Spirit to open people's eyes? Is that the reason this congregation, or my congregation, doesn't see more people converted? Or do we not see more people come to faith in Christ because we're simply not being faithful in proclaiming the message, trusting that the Holy Spirit will, will bring forth fruit? That's just something for, for you all to think about. It's something I've meditated about in preparing to preach, preach this message. What makes us think that the people in our lives are blinded, are blinded to the truth? What makes us think? What gives us the right to judge people and think that they will never believe it? You ever prejudge somebody like that? That person will not receive the gospel. I could share the gospel with him, but he would not believe it. She would not even want to hear five words out of my mouth if she knew that they were going to be about Jesus. And so we've never pointed those men and women to Christ. What are we saying about what we believe about God when we prejudge people? Before you came to Christ, would anyone have ever prejudged you? You thought, nah, he or she is too hard-hearted. Brothers and sisters, let me warn you that when we prejudge people, first of all, we're standing in the place of God. What a prideful thing to do. Second of all, we're creating a little tiny view of God. We're putting God in a box of our own mindset, and we're actually prejudging God what He can or cannot do. What He will or would not do. Oh, let us repent of that pride. 
that would make us think that we are wiser than He and that we understand His power better than He does. And that infinite power gives us hope. It reminds us that we only have to tell the truth. And what is that truth? Well, that, that truth is our third vital truth. The truth about God that we tell is the third vital truth we'll consider this morning. So we remember to point people to Christ. This is what we see here in verses 5 and 6. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves merely, ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So we proclaim Jesus Christ, and we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, as King. We proclaim not ourselves. We are just slaves would be a very literal way to explain this. We are slaves of people who need to hear this message. So I asked earlier, who would ever want to associate with us? Who'd ever want to believe our message? Well, well, here's the beauty of it, brothers and sisters. Our goal is not to try to get people to associate with us. Our goal, our mission, is to point people to Jesus. We may not be attractive to the world outside, but if we proclaim a right picture of Jesus in our words and in our lives, we can have confidence that the Holy Spirit of God will cause that light to shine so that they will see and love the beautiful image of Jesus, who He is. Our job is not to try to conform people to our image, to get them to look like us. Our job is to lead people to desire to be conformed into the beautiful picture of what Jesus is like. Now let me just say here, beware popular preachers, prominent religious personalities who who make themselves, their personality, their persona, whatever it might be, who make themselves the center of attention rather than Jesus. Paul would have hated that. Paul says we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And when we proclaim Jesus, God makes the, God makes the light to shine. He makes the light to shine into blind eyes. That's what Paul is talking about when he refers in, to Genesis 1. I think verse 6 is an allusion back to Genesis chapter 1. So this verse says, for God who said, light shine, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Okay, where do we read about that? We read about that in Genesis 1.1. Well, in Genesis 1, where God says, let there be light. And there was light. The message of this text is that if God could cause light to exist out of nothing and to shine into all the universe that's around us, if God could do that, we should not be surprised if God can cause the light of the gospel to shine in men's and women's hearts, in those most hostile of hearts that we may encounter. If God can create light, He can cause that light to penetrate blind eyes. And it's not just that. It's not just about one particular person that you may have in mind. God has promised to make all the nations see that light. That's what the prophet Isaiah was talking about in the passage that we read from earlier, from Isaiah chapter 9. In that passage we read, In the latter time, God has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations. The people who walked, the people who walked there in Galilee, in darkness, in darkness, sound like this, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them, on them the light has shone. 
And so there in Isaiah, echoed here in 2 Corinthians 4, we see hope that of all the nations of the earth, even those that we think of as being least inaccessible, most hostile to the Gospel, most caught up in other gods, most antagonistic towards Christianity, to all of those nations the light will shine and God will cause to spring forth there worshipers in His name. This is happening all over Let's just say the continent of Asia, particularly in some parts of Asia. Southeast Asia, South Asia, Central Asia, in some some nations where there was a handful of Christians just a couple decades ago. Now there are tens of thousands. I read an email from from my cousin a few weeks ago who is working in Central Asia in one country where... A, a, a mega church in this country in Central Asia, a mega church would be 70 people. Okay, 70 people is one of the largest churches in the entire country. And it's a very large country. They had a family camp a few weeks ago where a number of Christians in one part of that country, the eastern part of that country, a family camp where they all got together and, and slept in tents and used holes in the ground for what you use holes in the ground for. And there were 200 people 200 people at this family camp, and that was the most in, in the lifetime of any of the people who were there. That was the most Christians that they had ever gathered together with. And they rejoiced at how the gospel is taking root and expanding in their country because those 200 represented thousands more who've come to faith in Christ in the last couple of decades. So this passage means that God has promised that God will see God will cause people to see the light of the gospel when we proclaim Jesus. Whether it's to your next door neighbor, in this surrounding community, I know not a lot of you live right around in this area, or in some remote part part of of the world where God may send a family or families from this church one day. God will cause the light of the gospel to be seen. Some of you, even during this past week, have been ministering the gospel to people, and you to this point at least perhaps, have been seeing no fruit. You've been praying. And on the, on the basis of what this passage says, verse 1, I would encourage you, do not lose heart. Do not give up. What should you do? Keep pointing them to Jesus as you have any opportunity. Keep trusting that God will cause His light to shine. So what do we tell people about Jesus? What is it about Him that we are to say? How do we display the light of God's glory? How, how do we show them what Paul talks about here, the last phrase when he says, when he talks about the face of Christ? How do we show them the face of Christ? What is this all talking about, seeing the face of Christ? Well, we could turn over to Hebrews chapter 1 and see that Jesus is the perfect image of the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. In other words, Jesus was and is exactly what God created Adam to be. God is, Jesus is exactly what God created mankind to be. A display of the image. Remember in Genesis, God created man in the image of God? God intended for us to display the image of His own character and nature. And every single one of us, every single day, we fall flat on our face. And we display a distorted image of what Jesus is like. A distorted image of what God is like. But Jesus is the one person, God Himself, who entered humanity, who just always displayed a perfect picture of His Father. And we want to tell people about Jesus. Jesus is the brilliant display of everything God is like. And so, while we protect 
and defend our own rights, Jesus relinquished His rights in order to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. While we are so often first and foremost committed to our own agenda, our plans, our priorities, our personal ambitions, Jesus always, totally, without fail, submitted Himself to the Father's purposes. While we, while we subtly at times, but oftentimes, make much of ourselves, seek to, seek to exalt our names, to, to elevate our own standing in whatever workplace, relationship we might find ourselves in, while we seek to exalt ourselves, Jesus always, totally sought to exalt His Father's name. And while we often buck against what God demands of us, Jesus always, totally submitted Himself to the Father's will. Even with great anguish in the garden, knowing that submission would cost Him His life. And while we so often want to be served, Husbands, we want to be served. Wives, we, you all want to be served too. And children, surely children des desire to be served. And so while we desire others to, to orient their lives around us, Jesus came to serve and to offer His life as a sacrifice, a ransom for many. That's just a bit of what the face of Jesus looks like. Everything that we are not he is and has been. But even more than that, I want you to look at the next few verses here in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. So in verses 8 and 9, Paul describes his own sufferings. His own sufferings in the course of doing gospel ministry. He says in verse 8, we're, we're, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We, we see here these four pairs of sufferings and their and their limitations. Now, you notice how each one of these has a limitation? We're afflicted but not crushed. Okay, so it doesn't, Paul's sufferings don't go all the way. There's a limitation on those sufferings. Why do you think there was a limit to Paul's sufferings? I wonder whether there was a limit to Paul's sufferings because Jesus had already fulfilled all of those sufferings. So if, if you think about these things that Paul suffered, each one of them that Paul did not experience to its fulfillment, think about how Jesus did experience those things to their fulfillment. So while Paul was not crushed, we can turn to Isaiah chapter 53 and find there twice that Jesus was crushed for us. Paul did not find despair, but in Luke 22, in the garden, Luke 22, 44, in an agony, Jesus prayed there in the garden. He prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Perhaps not complete hopeless despair, but certainly anguish that Jesus fully experienced in light of what he was about to do for us. Paul is not abandoned, but in Matthew 27, 46, Jesus spoke these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You could say, why have you abandoned me? He was abandoned for us. And then Paul was not destroyed. But in Matthew 27, 20, exactly what the religious leaders were trying to do was to destroy Jesus. All throughout the Gospels, 
They were seeking to destroy him. And that is what the crowds ultimately succeeded in doing, at least for a moment. The message for us is that in every way that we suffer partially, in every way we suffer partially, Jesus suffered fully in our place. And he did it so that God's punishment, so that those, the weight of that wrath would not fall upon us. And so in that suffering, God, or Jesus, fully radiates. He puts on display God's justice in taking God's penalty upon him. But he also fully radiates God's mercy in offering to all who will receive him, to all who will trust in him, turning from a commitment to to serve themselves in sin, repent and declare allegiance to him. In that way, Jesus radiates God's mercy, his wide open arms willing to forgive. Men, have you considered, have you considered that, that, that the face of Jesus for you is a model for your role as a husband and father? How are you relinquishing your rights and comforts in order to serve? Not, not just to put food on the table, not just to fix up the house, but, but to help your wife and kids be, be changed into Jesus' image. How are you inconveniencing yourself? to lead your wife and kids to be more like Jesus. My non-Christian friend who may be here with us this morning, is this picture of Jesus' face, this suffering, sacrificing picture of Jesus, is this what you've understood him to be like? Have you thought of Jesus in another way, in a distorted way because of what you heard from, from, from someone who claimed to be a Christian? Have you seen Jesus to be a sacrifice in your place, a sacrifice made so that you could be reconciled to God? This is the message of the gospel. And friend, I would appeal to you this morning, don't walk out of these doors without having a conversation with someone who's here, who's a part of this church with myself, someone you saw up here on the platform today. Speak to one of those folks. To try to understand what, how you might have misunderstood Jesus. Is there any reason why you would not? Why would you not? Why would you not consider your need to respond today? And my Christian friend, is this picture of Jesus' face in any way reflected in you? How is the sacrificial picture of Jesus reflected in your priorities, in your agenda, in your ambitions? Remember that, that verse 5, we read it, this five, this verse 5 compels us to preach Christ, but to preach Christ as Lord. Who is functioning as Lord in your life? Who is functioning as the king over the decisions that you've made over the last week, and over the decisions that you plan to make in the next week with your time, with your money, with your energy, with your priorities? Who's functioning as Lord? If you have received Christ, you have received him as Lord. Do not be deceived and think that you are safe if, because you made a decision years ago to follow Jesus. Still, when it gets right down to it, you're the Lord, not Him. I would appeal to you not to be deceived. Thomas L. Friedman is an editorial writer for the New York Times. In one of his, one of his works, he wrote that pessimists are usually right and optimists are usually wrong. But all the great changes 
in the world, all the great changes have been accomplished by optimists. So brothers and sisters, what do we do as a church, as individuals, what do we do instead of giving up? I would appeal to you from this text, do not lose heart. Remember that we have this ministry by God's mercy. If it advances through us, it will not be because of us. Though it advances through us, it will advance because of Him. This is true of you among us who are retired, you among us who are stay-at-home moms who may feel as though you, know, you just don't have that many relationships with, with unbelievers in your community, in the workplace. But it is true that the Gospel will advance through you when you find ways to speak of Jesus and display His glory. It is true for this church. It is true for this church in this neighborhood. How? What strategies will be useful to get this gospel to, to get your gospel to this community? I do not know. You know far better than I do. And I'm encouraged when I hear about how you desire to get the gospel to your community. But as you are faithful and you simply tell the truth, you can have confidence that fruit will, will, will be born. These are the words that you sang. You confess them to be true. Did, did you believe what you, what you sang earlier this morning? We will walk by faith. That's right here in, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18. Similar verses in this chapter. We will walk by faith, not by sight. The power of the Gospel shall prevail. We will stand as children of the promise. We will, we will fix our eyes on Him, our soul's reward. Did we believe that that was true when those words came from our lips? Let this be an optimistic church. Let us, let us proclaim Jesus, whether it's down the street or in Cedar Park or southwest Austin or cent wherever you may live. Let us proclaim the Gospel boldly there far and wide, perhaps even to the ends of the earth. And let us proclaim it boldly, expecting fruit. Expecting that we, as children of the, promise, of the promise, God will keep His promises to His children. And maybe we will see great changes. Maybe you here will see an unexpected, overwhelming response to the Gospel through this church as God works through you. Surely He is sufficient. Will we be faithful? Will we believe the plain words of this text? Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we believe these truths as we read them in Your Word. Yet, Father, so often we fail to believe them when we're faced with that opportunity to press a conversation a little bit further, to ask what might, might seem like an, an awkward question that could lead to a chance to tell someone about Christ. Lord, we have this ministry by mercy. You have caused us to believe it by mercy, and you've, caused it, you've entrusted it to us as an act of your mercy. You've only asked that we tell the truth. Father, give us confidence to speak this truth boldly and trust wholeheartedly that You will keep Your promises. May this congregation be encouraged and increasingly optimistic as they see Your power and Your faithfulness. We pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen. Please stand as we sing a final hymn together. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a 